1: is Dave Hanreddy and there will be no encore. Welcome to episode 291, although there actually have been more episodes than that. If you top them all together, I haven't even done that. It's no encore music podcast, everybody. We're back. And so is my co-host, the amazing, the wonderful Craig Fitzpatrick.
2: Why, thank you. It's great to be back. I'm delighted that um, I was the lead headline in the preamble. Two words, Craig back. It's been a week. (laughs) Technically two weeks, I guess.
1: Yeah, and um I sure I saw you at
2: the weekend. We were able <laughs> The for sparkling pints. banter is still in place. <laughs> I, I assumed I assumed you'd
1: more to say. I assumed there was more <laughs> happening, but no no, it's fine. Um, but don't worry because uh, like when, if we have those gaps, if we have those like yeah, the chemistry's gone, it's like a marriage, you know? Like it's you, you take one week off, you got to keep working on it. But if anything That's goes wrong, true. right? If anything happens on this episode, if we do have moments like that where it's terrible, um our our special guest sonic architect for the next two weeks david tapley of tandem felix fame will sort us out tapley welcome to the dance he's here with us everybody he's got a microphone sorry i just i
2: hid my uh option to view myself and it changed so i can just see the two of you and then i couldn't find the unmute button so you're on, you're on mute. Well, we're off to an
1: absolute flyer. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a classic episode. And like, it's interesting because I feel like on this episode we're going to have people kind of coming in for the first time because of the topic. Our top five this week, our main event later in the show, it's top five drumming songs. Craig mm. shows up this one. And boy, do I have a big disclaimer about that one when we get to the top five, but we'll get there later in the show. <laughs> Stick with the show for Is this going to be the last
2: episode, Dave? <laughs>
1: no, no, no. It's not like that. Oh, okay. It's not like a tw- it's not twist drama announcement. It's just more like, oh... This is a very broad topic and we're not going to be able to cover it sufficiently on this one episode, uh, is what I've learned this week. But You're going to have a you... song
2: that has like no drums in it and you're just like, no, well, no, no. actually no, no, the no, emptiness no, no. of the...
1: <laughs> no, I'm not being that high concept, don't worry about it. Uh, before that though, we'll be reviewing an album, a brand new album. It's by a band called Deaf Heaven, it's called Infinite Granite. That is our lead review. We're not doing Lord. Apologies to all the Lord fans who were desperate to know. <laughs> Dave just, their just couldn't.
2: He came to me and he said, we can't, I can't. And I said, it's I did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's- I texted you on Friday and I was like, please no. Um, but yeah, on Wednesday of this week, if you're listening to it this week that it comes out, we dropped our Orla Gartland interview episode. It's out now. I'd highly encourage you to go back and check it out and check out Orla's debut album, Woman on the internet. If you get to do so, it's a great episode. If I do say so myself, it's out now. And next week on the show, a lot is happening. I think we have three episodes next week because we have No Popcorn coming back. We Are Your Friends, as edited by David Tapley. That's on Wednesday. Um, On Monday, though, because it is the last Monday of the month, and that means a brand new episode of Before the Encore, Sonic Architect Adams' show in which he speaks to people in the music industry behind the scenes. And this time, he has a conversation with Theodora Byrne, who is an incredible, like, super talented uh, multi-instrumentalist musician. She's a musical director. She's worked with the likes and works with the likes of James Vince McMorrow, Saint Sister, Sorka Richardson, and her own Theodore Byrne Ensemble. I've heard the episode, It's Great, and it's out on Monday. So that's Adam's new kind of offshoot gig. Adam is off for a couple of weeks, working away, and then taking a well-deserved holiday. But, you know, we just don't stop. We just do not stop on the show. And if you appreciate all of the endeavour patreon.com slash noencore is the place to go throw us a fiver get bonus episodes in return and uh our undying love and gratitude and with that said it's time to kick off how we always kick off with this
2: hey you heard about the good news we should start kicking off with every week with Tapley's exasperated sigh <laughs> Yeah, I think so.
1: Uh, And this week it suits it because it isn't good news to kick off the news section, is it, Craig? And this was kind of a weird, ironic thing because we did choose top five drumming songs. And then one of the great drummers of all time passed away this week. Please tell us more.
2: Yeah, kind of grim, I guess, synchronicity there. Um, So he, yeah, it was announced that he's passed away. Charlie Watts, um, 80 years old, Rolling Stones legend. And it was one of those ones where we'd heard a few weeks ago um, that the band were getting back on the road because, of course, it's the Rolling Stones. That's what they do. Continuing their no-filter tour, which I love. But um, he had had surgery, unspecified surgery, and... um, I think the press release was very kind of breezy, and it was, like, reassuring, and it was, you know, this has gone successful. Uh, but he's been told by his doctors just to kind of allow some time to recuperate, and we'll, we'll see him again soon. And it really kind of made this uh, a bit of a blow. But obviously, you know, tributes have been um, flooding in all week. Uh, always had a lot of time for him, and I think a lot of people would say, even if... They did, you know, for some people, the Stones will rub them the wrong way, but he was like, I guess, the glue that held the band together. The nice guy of the group um, always considered himself more of a, you know, jazz drummer uh, than a rock drummer. You kind of got the feeling that he probably didn't listen to his own music and he was just <laughs> kind of happy do, doing what he was doing. And he did it um very close to the end. So, yeah, an amazing legacy and career.
1: Yeah, it seems to be that like the Stones were almost his side project or something, and he was much more concerned and interested in just playing in jazz bands and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, which is amazing because like, fair enough, like the Stones debate can 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 run and run. They're bands that I quite like. Um, I can appreciate it. People think they're, that they're not very good or whatever, but they are iconic. You know that overused word. And I think he's a big reason for it. I think just his kind of incredibly kind of steady rhythms like gave them a lot of leeway. It's funny because like, yeah, I know what you're getting at. You're kind of making the point that in a band full of weirdos, like he seemed to be the one kind of cool character, just like the, the normal guy in the background just holding it all together. And they kind of needed that, I think, ultimately.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think he was, you know, a couple of years older. And I guess that just made all the difference probably in the very early days. He was like married to the same woman for absolutely decades and stuff and had no truck, Were kind of like partying on the road and uh he knew when to put them in their place as well. There was a couple of stories there I just saw online which were um succinct but kind of cool and I will apologise for the first one being an anecdote that Ronnie Wood told on Top Gear um, but takes nothing away from it. <laughs> so Ronnie Wood was asked if Charlie had any cars and Wood said that he Watts did but he never drove them. He would just start the engine and sit in them he also had a matching suit for each car. I love True eccentrics. And then the next story, which is pro- possibly my favorite one, was that Mick Jagger called up Charlie Watts back in the day at about like 3 a.m., middle of the night, uh, hotel kind of here in full flow and said, Oi, where's my fucking drummer? <laughs> Charlie got up, shaved, put on a suit, knocked on Mick's hotel door. When Mick answered, he punched him and said, I'm not your fucking drummer, you're my fucking singer, and took (laughs) off. And we can't condone violence, but you know, it sounds like a trying time. And that was the impact, I guess, he brought to the band. And I held them together for, what, 60 years, 50 years? Incredible. The um the shaving and putting
1: on the suit part really intrigues me <laughs> because
2: that's just know, right?
1: you're ca- like surely you're calming down in that moment but no this is a committed plan and there's a strategy. Oh, I think it was a
2: calm act. You know, he just knew. <laughs> yeah, as he say, like he knew he, he had to do something um, and had to set Mick straight, But yeah, he was just you know impeccable in every way, very tasteful, and brought a lot to the stones. So he'll be missed.
1: Yeah he had to look good even when he was doing GBH to his bandmate and um, yeah it's like some of the photo- photographs of him over the years are incredible a ridiculously sartorial man and I, I remember an interview with him a few years ago in the Guardian and they're talking about him playing Glastonbury and they're like oh man it must just not get better than this right and he was like I can't stand it he's like the wind just <laughs> blows my symbols all over the place and it sucks and they're like what <laughs> that was his that's his reaction to playing on the main stage of Glastonbury uh, yeah rest in peace Charlie Watts man he was a cool guy um, yeah, yeah. some other sad news that. This week from a very different corner of the musical world, Insane Clown Posse. Again, I'm just imagining some people coming to this show to hear the drumming stuff and being like, sorry, what? Like, Insane Clown <laughs> Posse, Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope, uh infamous band, uh, have announced something of a farewell tour for uh, the following year. Essentially, uh, the gathering of the Juggalos took place last weekend. Covid be damned. It's going ahead. It's all happening. And they made an, a sad announcement to the crowd. Essentially, Violent J said that he's suffering from heart failure and as a result, he's going to have to scale back massively. It was a weird one because they said that they're doing a retirement tour, but they also said, don't worry, this won't affect the music. We're still going to gig every
2: month. So, as ever, yeah, crank, I, as I got, music's greatest <laughs> contradiction. I know, I know. Um, yeah, awful that he's suffering from heart problems. Hopefully, he's getting the treatment he needs. Um, story itself sounded pretty. <sighs> not great like he went to the hospital to see what was going on because he was getting winded just walking to his studio which was like right next door to his house and they basically said all our doctors are tied up um i'm guessing this was america um and the nurse said they want you to go straight home get in bed and they'll call you first thing in the morning which is like that has got to be a very relaxing night's sleep doesn't it like jeez jesus christ that's a very, um, like,
1: wartime almost kind of thing where it's just like, just sleep it off, you know, triage.
2: Yeah, and you would be doing no sleeping, I would imagine. Um, anyway, yeah, they called before the birds even woke up and said, go to the hospital, um, took him in the back and basically just said um, he had a heart failure. So scared him straight. Um, sounds like he's not really slowing down a huge amount as he said from the like we're, we're still going to gig every single month and like record and do all that kind of stuff but I guess in some ways it's the end of an era um, gathering of the juggalos is probably not the place you want to be if you are a person struggling with heart problems so uh, wise move
1: yeah no fair enough um, we won't be talking about a certain festival this week because I've had it I'm sick to the back teeth no more audio <laughs> dropping, no more stim baby yeah, I was going to breeze right past it, man. I, I I can't keep up with it. Instead, we'll talk about something else. We'll talk about um, a curious story during the rounds. Um, Craig, if you as a child were photographed for an album cover that would later turn out to be one of the biggest albums of all time, um, and then over the years, you know, you referenced it yourself. You did lots of photo shoots as you grew up, and then you know, turned around one day and then made a very very questionable claim. Uh, how do you think it would go down? AKA, what do you think of the story? that
2: Spencer Eldon...
1: This is such
2: a great protracted intro and quite a leading question, I might say. I was going to keep going with
1: it. Yeah, I realised I can't go any further with this one. Spencer Eldon, who appeared as a baby on the cover of Nevermind by Nirvana in 1991 and has, in fact, done photo shoots over the years as he's gotten older in some kind of Michael Apthead 7-Up style tribute, has come out this week and said that suing, he's suing the surviving members of Nirvana and citing child pornography... As yeah. one of the key reasons. So, uh, I mean, before we get into that, because you there very there may very well be some valid claims in there, and some questions certainly lie with the parents of the baby, all that kind of stuff. This guy has done interviews over the years and has given out that he hasn't gotten more money from the band. You know, he's he's given some questionable quotes over the years about like his relationship with this, and just it it's uh, it's a tough one because he sounds like a fucking douchebag. It sounds like a cash grab, but maybe he's. Maybe he's actually onto something. Is he? Is is there a precedent here? Like, could this be a thing?
2: Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a precedent here. It's, you know, uh, as you say, he's done so many photo shoots recreating this over the years. And I was reading about, like, in one where it's just like they've all been him, like, with shorts on. But he even says, like, enthusiastically in quotes of like, I was like to the photographer, I'll just whip my my, my trunks off. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. So he seemed very enthusiastic about it. He's got, like, Nevermind tattooed on him. And listen, yeah, of course, people are completely within the rights to change their mind. And, of course, if something was... If there's some trauma there, it might take years before it comes back. But it doesn't... My thing would always be some of the claims he is making, which is just, like, emotional distress... Um, with physical manifestations, um, lifelong loss of income, earning capacity, loss of past and future wages. I mean, no one would know that he was the baby on Nevermind if he didn't keep coming out in the press every five years talking about how great it was in such a defining moment. And yeah, he's, he's, you know, changed his tune, I think, from as far back as maybe 2016. So this isn't completely out of the blue, but it does seem like cash grab. It does seem like citing child pornography, which again, you don't want to be completely flipping about, but I mean, it's clearly an artistic, you know, depiction of a metaphor about capitalism. And I don't think it's and anyway, in the realms of something that you could maybe bring that into. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that matter, Dave. Do you want to take over that bit? <laughs> and like, sure, yeah, why not? Well,
1: I mean, I think it's fair to say that he really is chasing that dollar at this stage. He, in fact, is embracing the
2: evils of capitalism. But the reason I kind of asked about it's it is... It's a living this, album cover, much like a Kanye album, yeah.
1: Much like um, Animal Collective's Meriwether Post Pavilion, which, if you look at it for too oh, long, yeah. it starts moving, man. Uh, my, 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 my thing is this... Uh, I mean, a baby can't sign away their image rights. That has to be done by older people. So they've got a pen. Okay, I mean, I know you work in advertising, Craig, but that's a bit much. Like, I mean, I, I don't think we like that. The kid in that photograph didn't have fucking object permanence. So I'm not sure uh, like any kind of legalese contract is going to really fly in court. But it is America. Who knows? But I mean, this isn't like the guy getting punched in the face on the vulgar display of power album cover by Pantera. I mean, this is a baby. Like, like maybe. But the, the fact is, but the baby has grown. The baby has grown to be a man. Sounds like a bit of a questionable man. And it's it's full on. Like, I mean, like loss of income. Like, what are you talking about, man? Like, like you're not a member of the band. Like, this is completely egregious, surely. I, I gotta figure this would be laughed at of court tomorrow if it hasn't
2: already been, right? I would assume so. I mean, it would be very easy to prove and show documentation that the parents did give their consent back in the day. And I'm sure, I'm sure they went through those kind of channels and sorted that out at the time. So, I mean, the photographer was a friend of his dad, I believe, who was very enthusiastic about being used um by nirvana um so yeah i think this is going to be a this case will probably take less time than we've spent talking about it.
1: okay i'll move on but before we close the new section with craig on kanye please tell us about johnny rotten's day in court this week which didn't go very well for him did it
2: yeah he was very upset with danny boyle and his forthcoming fx series pistol um Basically had said that he was withholding the rights, to, the license to the band's music for the series uh, because he wasn't pleased with um, how he's portrayed um, in a hostile and unflattering light as the annoying little brat with the great bone structure who's always asking for more in um, yeah, Lydon's lawyer's words and... Um, Essentially, he he didn't really have, again, a leg to stand on because according to some like 1988 agreement, no single member of the band holds a veto over licensing rights. So it's just kind of gone away. But yeah, I think this was just a typical case of like John Lydon kicking out the world and taking huge umbrage with Danny Boyle. I'm not sure what the entire backstory to that was, but um, yeah, didn't get his way.
1: Well, I think you could reasonably lay some kind of ire at the feet of Danny Boyle for being one of the more erratic film directors out there. Every time he makes a good film, he, he follows up with something kind of weird and questionable. I'd say on the whole, a good director, but there's some bad stuff in that catalogue. Maybe that's okay, what he's so getting at.
2: You, so, what was his last film? Are you do you think Johnny Rotten sees a pattern? And he's like, well, this is going to be a terrible project. Um,
1: that's a good question he was supposed to do the Bond film and he was signed on to do it and then I, yeah. he left over Creative Differences and Kari Fukunaga took it up the Bond film that we're never going to see by the way it was supposed to be out a year and a half ago uh, and it's I think it's has got the
2: song <laughs> <laughs> it's a good song it is uh, a good song but it's just madness that's been out so long
1: <laughs> the film is currently scheduled for uh, October I believe of this year so hang on I'm, I'm looking up Danny Boyle's film I think it'll happen right I think
2: it'll come out i am never it's wrong made. about these things.
1: Oh, God. The last Danny Boyle film was yesterday, <laughs> which is oh, not well. good. In fact, there is, of course, a no popcorn episode. All you concept art. <laughs> mm. uh, before that, T2 Train Spotting, Steve Jobs, Trance, 127 Hours, Slumdog Millionaire, Sunshine, which is my favorite one of his, I believe. Um, yeah, like, Train Spot sequel was better than we thought it would be. Steve Jobs is very watchable, I think. Trance is terrible. Yeah, I enjoy I that, did- I have to say didn't watch 127 hours because i won't watch anything with james franco in it some dog millionaire is one of those ones that you watch and you're like this is great recommend it to the parents and then never watch it again i think so yeah moral of the story is everyone should go and watch sunshine it's an excellent film but i promised craig on kanye and that's what we're gonna have right now
0: attention everyone one one shut up craig on kanye
2: Where do we start, Dave? It's been quite a week. <laughs> yes. At some uh, point, even I switched off, and I was just like, I can't keep up. I got very I excited with the section, whole yeah. Joker meme image, which was like, oh my god. Um, There's a
1: lot happening. None of it, none of which is a new album. Um, yeah, he he's he's warring with Drake. He's changing his name. He's releasing a music device that allows you to. I guess finish the fucking album that he won't finish. Uh, Pick yeah, one, Yeah, the Craig. Donda what? Stem player. Um, Whichever well, one you yes,
2: want. Yeah, so this Donda Stem player, um, 200 quid, I believe, comes with the album preloaded. Fortunately, you can't purchase it um, in the EU. <laughs> I did check. I don't know if I would've gone through it <laughs> with it, but like... <laughs> I <laughs> was a dark night of soul yesterday when I was just like, well, I'll go in and see what's the story with this. It can, you describe, kind of
1: cool. can, can you describe the, the visual of this thing for anyone who has no idea what we're talking about?
2: It looks like a little kind of fire alarm circular disc thing. Or maybe I saw someone say it's um, modeled on the Eucharist, which is like a bit more high concept and kind of Donda-ish. And basically, it seems to come with Donda, but you can put any tracks you want on it and it kind of like uses machine learning inside this little gadget to make individual stems so you can remix and mess around with tracks which sounds actually pretty cool and I think hardware for this kind of already exists but it hasn't been done in this form so it might be good like it's a kind of nice little thing for fans or like people that are into that I I don't know to be what am I talking about (laughs) we still haven't got the actual album Uh, Mm. unless we do no, no,
1: stop. No, 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 no. No, no. No. It's not out. It's not happening. Uh 200 dollars isn't isn't the isn't the steepest thing. I mean, he could have charged anything for this. So, I mean, when you consider what
2: some of the merch is like, I feel like there was, you know, sweaters going for $200 recently enough. So, yeah, it seems like a properly decent product. Now I've clearly doomed it yeah okay well if it
1: comes out in the EU maybe we'll split it maybe we'll see what we can do maybe it's the only way to get the album in which case it's kind of genius but I'm also just like we just fucking release the album please for Christ's sake anyway look speaking of albums here's one that was actually released it came out last Friday it's by a band by the name of Deaf Heaven the record is called Infinite Granite this is the second track it's called In Blur enjoy was in blur by deaf heaven taken from the record infinite granite that was all very pleasant and quite uplifting and nice craig is that usually what deaf heaven sound like and also who are they
2: yeah, Deaf Heaven are apparently a post-black metal outfit. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. They're kind of a post-post-black metal outfit now. We'll we'll come to that for, for sure. I've seen black gays used as well. I don't quite know how all the terms work. Maybe more post-Rocky and certainly going into oh, almost popular territory. Um, but they are uh, bands that formed about a decade ago now um, out of San Francisco I think they were initially a two-piece: uh, singer George Clark and uh, Kerry McCoy on g- guitar. They soon expanded to a quintet. Um, their debut Roads to Judah" was maybe I think their heaviest like metalist effort, and um, they've long said you know they're always labelled as that black metal thing, and maybe the black metal band that it's kind of not acceptable but easier for your indie hipsters uh pitchfork types to get into um you know people like me who who did like some of their work um but just, they said it's just an influence you know they don't have that ethos the aesthetic or really the sound of one their ethos and aesthetic has been pretty captivating though uh, particularly on sunbader which came out 2013 uh, huge critical claim was seen as like you know one of the great albums of that year i particularly loved it um even though it was quite, um, screamy. Um, a lot of their previous work was, this is very much not. Um, and yeah, they've kind of just continued in that fashion, kind of like slowly evolving their sound. New Bermuda continued that a couple of years later. I lost a bit of, um, I lost kind of track with what they're up to, but Ordinary Corrupt Human Love came out three years ago and was again moving to make things more sonically mellow, so here we are with Infinite Granite, and yeah, it's apparently uh, the way Clark tells it that like this sonic overhaul happened totally organically. Um, they were working on material two summers back, and he said, just as we were writing, uh, the riffs weren't kind of amping up into metallic sections, and everyone was totally fine with that. And then they thought, okay, maybe rethinking the vocal approach will serve that music better. And you know what? Maybe we should enlist an outside producer. Um, so they've got on board Justin uh, Meldal Johnson, who's kind of known, I think, best for his work with Beck, but also MA Trees, Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. Uh, yeah, Be- Best Coast. And just shockingly, we are in that kind of territory. Were you shocked, Dave? Were you impressed? Pray tell. Um,
1: I wasn't shocked because the build-up for this record has, you know, again, they're not, they're yeah, not mainstream a mainstream band, dropping, per yeah. se. They're not mainstream band, but also they did get a five-star review in The Guardian there last week. Um, a, a band that I'm aware of, a band that I enjoy, um, and I have been keeping track of this, especially since the lead single, Great Mass of Colour, came out a few months ago, uh, something we discussed on No Ox Chord, which is our monthly Roundup Recommends Corner. You can get that on patreon.com slash noencore if you're interested. Uh, essentially at that moment as I'm trying to do with albums that I'm genuinely looking forward to now whether it was Billie Eilish recently or this one I'll listen to the first single and try and avoid the rest because I want to treat it like a film where I wouldn't watch the trailer I'd actually rather just go in and experience the thing as one block of work it's maybe it's a subconscious way of trying to like give the album more purpose at a time increasing time when obviously playlist culture has taken hold and the record should still have power. Um, So I held off on recent singles on this one, but I liked the first one that I heard. But yeah, the noise around this one has been that there isn't as much noise as usual, particularly when it comes to George Clark's vocals, to quote friend of the show and fellow no uh, Encore family member, Dave Higgins uh, George Clark's witch like vocals uh, which (laughs) they can get like that. It can be very like Goblins kind of suspirious or, I mean, even on tracks off Sunbather, and I think Sunbather is a masterpiece, uh, like The Pecan Tree, which I think is an incredible, incredible song. I could understand why somebody would hear that and just be like, nope, I can't get past those vocals. They're just, and, and, and Higgs is like a fucking Converge fan, you know, so it's, I guess it's a particular timber that George Clark has but that's almost gone almost entirely on this one. There's a couple of moments at the end of a couple of songs where he does go to that playbook, but generally it's kind of like what you heard there in the audio preview. It's a lot more mellow. It's a lot more shoegazy. It's a lot more kind of just like, I guess for a lot, I was going to say like sonically big, but that sounds ridiculous. It's expansive, I suppose. Um, So yeah, I had high expectations for this one and over the course of the last week, I've been listening to almost nothing else. I've hit repeat when it finishes. It's a long enough album. It's nine tracks, but it's about 54 minutes. Um, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, like, maybe I always was going to, but I didn't initially. It's one I've really enjoyed spending time with. I'm, I Like, when I'm not listening to it, I want to listen to it. I'm thinking about listening to it. It's like a new relationship. Um, no, I mean, like... I don't know if it reinvents the wheel as much as it was teased that it would. Um, Whether that was by the band themselves, whether that was by interviews around it, whether that was by some of the early reviews like Stereogum's Premature Evaluation, which is always a great read. I'd recommend people to go and check that out every week. No matter what they are reviewing, it's always a very considered interesting approach of the album review at a time when album reviews can be very throwaway. Um, So I don't think that they've changed the game to such degree that it's genuinely shocking. But I guess the vocal thing... For people who previously couldn't find a way into this band, I think they should now. Um, I think it's beautiful. I think it's really, really beautiful. I, I, I think it's it's got real weight to it. I think it's got real depth to it. And I've I've genuinely just been loving spending time with it. I haven't. I don't know how well I've approached it critically. I don't know how well I could appraise it right now, even on microphone. I just know that it's had an effect on me, and I've loved going back to it every single time. And you know what I always love with albums over the course of any given year is when they have a physical or they provoke a physical reaction in me and they feel like something that I'm genuinely attracted to and I gravitate towards. And that was the case here. I didn't think it was going to be at first. So I don't think I was just that easy of a sell. I felt I had to work a little bit with it, but once it kind of clicked, it really, really clicked. And I think it's great.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, strong eight and let's move on. <laughs> no, like it's yeah, no, I must say I've been playing it a huge amount as well. I think it's pretty glorious. It sounds very good to these ears. And if people are coming to the show to, you know, find out if they should give this new album a go, which I guess they do, apart from our like sparkling repartee and wit and stuff, yeah, the short answer would be yes. And then whatever way you kind of phrase the question of like if you've never heard them, yeah, I'd say get, get into it. If you've only dipped into previous stuff and found it a bit challenging and abrasive, mainly because of the vocals, then hell yeah. Um, but even, I think, if you're kind of a huge metal fan and loved those kind of darker elements of what they did previously, and you're kind of concerned that maybe something vital is going to be lost as they get more palatable, I don't think that's the case. So, yeah, check it out. Um. And yeah, I'm going to be probably sticking this one on when I go for a walk later and just continuing to rinse it because I think, I really don't think any of their kind of unique appeal or like their energy, their inventive approach, um, just to kind of creating these like cavernous soundscapes. Yes, soundscapes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it hasn't been d- diminished for me. I think you still have that like emotional heaviness. Um and I did read the, the Michael Han piece, um, obviously very effusive in his praise. I think he made a good point about um the drummer, Daniel Tracy, really kind of like giving the record. It's kind of continued power and just the fills and the patterns, just making sure that there isn't huge let up emotionally. And I think that's spot on. It's an album of great moments. Some of the transitions I thought were beautiful. I won't start listing them all off, but yeah, so many great moments um the gnashing i did like those moments i think where you know i think i think i'm thinking of the gnashing where it kind of moves out of view and about like three minutes in or something it kind of comes lumbering back in reminding me of like i want you she's so heavy a little bit just this kind of monolithic slab of like psychedelia and other occasions where he just gives you enough of that rasp to kind of repeat your interest and just you know Add that kind of tension um, as they do in closing and I just yeah I love the gloomy grandeur of it it's apparently an album about insomnia I think it has a nice kind of fever dream vibe to it as well um, it's quite ethereal like some of the guitars on it sound like they could be cocktail twins um, and yeah I'm gonna keep coming back to it I, d- I will actually say I think the clean vocals suit the songs they're completely like pleasant and approachable I don't think they always offer huge variety. Um, it, it Like, just to be kind of super uncharitable, like, you, you could say some of the tracks vocally are a bit identical if you... Never like wallpaper, but just... You have to work a little bit harder to really get to grips, I think, with the beauty of the record. It's pro- precisely, like, the opposite reason... It might have been a struggle for people previously where, like, the brutality of the sound is immediate Marmite. But I think this could go maybe under the radar and it just demands um, more and more listens. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And, yeah, as I said, strong eight. Uh, I would really recommend this. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with
1: you. The vocals weren't quite the, you know... If the 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 advertisement that was out there perhaps they're, I I think they're very it, strong but yeah it, yeah it
2: wasn't quite a moment of you know oh my god he's had this up his sleeve do you know what yes, I mean like that kind I of agree. thing which is like a lot of pressure because obviously so distinctive to begin with yeah but, but I yeah.
1: do think that it's a reinforcement of how good the band are as players and how good they are as a unit and I think it's very interesting to see them kind of flexing new muscles at this stage of their career I think this is easily their best album since Sunbather it's very different to that one in terms particularly of just how sunbather often goes for the jugular but sunbather did have like these moments like they've always had these moments of mellowness i've always had these kind of new romantic dropouts and just like clearly you know into musicianship and like languishing around for a while and just kind of loitering about in a very interesting good way ultimately for me the record proved great company over the course of the week so uh 8.5 bordering on a nine but 8.5 for now i guess we'll see As it all opens up. Um, All right, so listen. It is time. It is time as I get comfortable in my uncomfortable chair for our top five this week. So, of course, as Craig notes, weirdly, darkly ironic. Like, we picked best drumming songs and then one of the most iconic drummers of all time passes away shortly afterwards. So this is not designed as a tribute to Charlie Watts. But of course, you know, I think his spirit has influenced many people over the years and will continue to. Uh, I do want to say, though, (laughs) before we crack onto this... um, so this got a big response on Twitter uh, when I put out like we're doing best drumming songs on the show this week hit me um, I got like I was absolutely avalanched by suggestions and favourites uh, shouts in particular to Hall Quinn by the way of Enemies, Melty Brains and Dermot Kennedy fame oh, yeah. uh, for listing about 30 songs alone <laughs> um, so yeah listen like I said earlier uh and, you know, he's an incredible drummer. Other drummers weighed in. And I, and I, I began to feel the pressure. And plus, I feel like we might get some some New Year's on this episode. Like, Dermot Morgan's son, like, the great Dermot Morgan, his son, who doesn't even follow me on Twitter, like, quoted my
2: tweet and went, this would be a great listen. And I was like, oh, for
1: fuck's sake. I was like, this is... <laughs>
2: Not to heap on the pressure, but, like, for newer listeners and people unfamiliar with your work, you are also a drummer, Dave. So the pressure's lapsed, off me, right? I'm a lapsed, complete Luddite. <laughs> lapsed drummer. We'll get
1: to that. Uh, just some quick scheme then if I may and not this is not apologetic but like I just think that this is obviously an exceptionally broad topic that Craig and I have spent less than a full week on, so I recognise that we could do this topic twenty times over with months of work on it, and we'd still fail to definitively highlight everything. You know, so as with every top five that we do, it's about good instinct, it's about first things that come to mind on an intrinsic level, it's about making extremely tough choices and being ruthless, and it's about having fun with the idea. So please understand. Oh wow!
2: It's <laughs> going, going to be a. We're lot. just having fun, folks.
1: <laughs> this is, there's going to be a lot of. It's going to be a lot of amazing drumming songs and drummers left out of the phone conversation. And yes, from my own stance, my own leanings as a drummer, albeit one who has not played the drums in seven long years and counting. Uh, I was never technical. I struggled playing to a click track. I played with my forearms rather than my wrists quite often. I'm not going to have nice prepared essays here about Ginger Baker, Buddy Rich and John Bonham. It's just not this top five, at least not this time around. But what I can promise is that I have picked five songs that boast truly standout moments in drumming, five songs that are elevated so strongly by those behind the beats that it should make you want to get involved with drums and percussion yourself. Five songs that I think offer just the smallest sample size of maybe my favourite element of music. So, you know, stick around for this
2: and stick around for the show in general (laughs) if you are indeed new around these parts. No encore every
1: Friday. It's happening. Go on.
2: And yeah, plug the Patreon, I guess. Patreon.com forward slash Encore. Um, <laughs> no, you put that at yeah, the end what, when
1: we do a good job. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we need to get the cash now. Who knows how this will go. Um, yeah, for my part, I um, I think my list is like one of my most basic lists. And I think people will be able to telegraph it. So, But I had fun with it. So I think that's the theme. Will I start? Because I feel like well, well, um, I'm, I'm people might did. be more interested in your number one just two more things before we get going right one okay. I want to say is
1: uh, like I say I had a huge 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 response to this on Twitter which was great and I want to honour that by basically uh, I intend to make a playlist of every single suggestion that came my way on there and I will post it inclusive on the pics on this episode on my Twitter account at Ready Dave, either over or after the weekend I think there was I didn't do the counting but like there's got to be over a hundred songs in there easily, so I'm gonna try and compile that all together. And lastly, what I will say, Craig, just to reference Charlie Watts one more time: Did you notice this week what always happens when a legendary musician passes on? Did you notice the the tweets doing the rounds where it's like, "Oh man, I bet I bet John Bonham and Keith Moon and Charlie are making oh, a real yeah, racket up there right now." <laughs> I was just, I was just like yeah. that would sound fucking horrendous.
2: Like, <laughs> we don't sound, know, but maybe <laughs> one once. day we will. <laughs> Oh just sit God. in, you know, rotating. Just make it, you know, if they've got all the time in the world. So okay, all I think my note, disclaimer there was a uh,
1: yeah, I think my disclaimer there was longer than the fucking news section. So
2: if you want to say something now is the time. No, I'm good. Will I will I kick in because I think maybe we'll we'll um culminate with your number one. So my number five is I'm um, gonna take us to after I build up the American Midwest a band we all know and love. Here we go. I was carried To Ohio In a swarm of bees I never married But Ohio Don't remember me I still owe money yeah, it's The National, it's Bloodbuzz Ohio, it's uh, Brian Devendorf on the, on the skins there. Uh, so propulsive, so, so good, you know, like muscular, but somehow still sensitive. I'm going to be grasping for language a lot in this section, Dave. Oh no, like please, please, being, please, yeah, please try please to excuse. assign meaning to various like rhythmic patterns
1: that I wouldn't know how to play. Just, uh, so long as you keep introducing everyone with on the skins there, I
2: think we'll be fine. <laughs> Just keep doing that. He's tremendous. I mean, everyone knows that he really adds something different to The National, who have been going for a long time, and we've talked previously on the show about how, you know, they've um, slapping the tubs, as Dave Tapley says there. Uh, yeah, they've, you know, played Ireland so many times as well that we can sometimes get uh, the national fatigue. Um, but a great band, and yeah, a really standout part of what makes them so incredible is Devendorf. And this is probably my favourite. It could have been Mr. November, maybe. I think I've previously picked that song. But Blood Buzz Ohio just, you know, somehow works so well, I think, lyrically as well. Like it gives you that sense of travel. It's like, you know, travel log timekeeping. It's very kind of widescreen America. Uh, almost like a, you know, maybe a Larry Mullen vibe. If Larry Mullen had more chops, sorry, Larry. Oh. But uh, <laughs> well, no, he's very, he's very steady. He's very good. He has his moments, but um, I I think maybe he would say he's not at the caliber of that man who's just doing something else entirely. A uh, total powerhouse, just doing this real great locomotion thing. Not the Kylie locomotion, but I'm sure you could do that as well. Um, also, you know, prior to uh, getting the band together, worked in an ad agency, as I think many of them did. So, gets my you know props there. And um, someone did point out as well on Reddit, it was Moonweasel, um, that he's a great man to watch play the drums, which I guess we've all noticed at this point because he's played ten times here in you know the last ten years. But like, there's there is great shots of him doing like KEXP stuff where it kind of. He he moves very very little, <laughs> so he almost as Moonweasel says it. He looks kind of like a sloth playing the drums, like he's just doing these inc- cr- cr- like cr- crazy complex beats as far as I can tell, but just like really economical in his movements, not a lot kind of going on there. But um, bruising, but also somehow understated, and that's kind of when the national are at their best. He is too. So That's my number five.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you have your fucking, like, take your pick with national songs, you know? I mean, when it comes to the drums. Uh, And yeah, like, I mean, like, so again, if anyone's listening to this for the first time, Craig and I don't know what we've chosen. So uh, I will say that I don't have a national song in my top five, but it was very much like I struggled big time to get this thing down to five this week and the national were certainly in there. I was thinking like Terrible Love alternate version, which is just.
2: Oh yeah, that's tremendous.
1: Yeah. Incredible stuff and like live tracks of that. I've seen the national five times. Uh, I, I met him actually. I saw him like. At the like back or outside the venue, outside the Olympia, one year I walked by and I just walked up to him and I couldn't help it. I was just like, "This is is pre music journalist Dave," so you know, I was just like full on fanboy, (laughs) and I just walked up and I was like, "Oh man!" I was like, "You're fucking amazing!" Like you know, like blah 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 blah, and he was like, "Oh thanks, man!" Like just like a cool nice guy. But yeah, I know what you're saying. Like there's. He doesn't have a, a, a massively physical presence. He doesn't show off. He doesn't like throw sticks up and catch them or whatever. But there's just this unbelievable dexterity and just the ability to kind of climb around the entire kit, power every single song, like even Fake Empire, just the way that the, the, the part, the drums play on that one. They're a band that, yeah, for sure, they're oversaturated. They're oversaturated when it comes to Ireland as well. They're here as, as often as Nala Rogers is. But at the same time, uh, I think I am almost ready to fall back in love with them and it's this kind of stuff that always brings me back in that and also by the way of course when you played that track and I'm sure it was the same for you um, I don't think either either of us will ever forget Stuart Clark singing along to this in the hot press office back in the day that was always a always a real treat.
2: A constant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was on the player quite a bit and did not diminish its power. Of course, just added to it with uh, Stuart Stolzell Tones it should be said. Absolutely.
1: The only thing that can make that band better will be Stuart Clark on backup vocals. Number five for me, something a bit different. I feel like I have a lot of work to do still. You know, I'm a student of the drums, and I'm also a teacher of the drums too. <laughs> That's DJ Shadow, and the track is Building Steam with a Grain of Salt from the record. Introducing, uh, I have tried to try and have some scope in this top five where possible, and like I say, I know that there's going to be so much stuff that we just won't be able to get to in this episode. But like, I'm I'm, I'm trying to kind of branch out a little bit with my opening pick here, and talk about you know sampling and hip hop and electronic drums and kind of like what that adds to the mix. So, uh, in order to help me do that, here is some audio I've captured from an NPR interview that DJ Shadow did. back in 2012 about this very specific song and he'll tell you who was speaking there and also who you're hearing on those drums uh that's a gentleman named george marsh uh, a uh, drummer from the bay area and there was an instructional record um about music and he was interviewing some of his favorite drummers it's from i think about 74 and then that percussion the percussion is from a high school record um In the 60s and 70s primarily, you know, any local high school or or college would, in addition to having a yearbook, the school would pay to press 500 copies of the school band and what they were up to. That's where the drums come from. So, like shortly afterwards, in an interview, DJ Shadow goes on to kind of elaborate on where he finds his sound. So, like you know, like that one there is from like a, a as you says, like just an American high school band, which I didn't know uh, until this week. I just assumed it was like some incredible beats he was making in his bedroom or something. But like no, I, yeah, I was, like, yeah, I was like, that's fucking amazing. That's just like not what I I would expect an American high school band to be captured, like, you know, back in the day. It just has such... Because, like, those drums in particular, like, they announce the song after the song has been announced and they just kick it into gear in such a way. Later on in the track, the the drums just start, like, folding in upon themselves, almost like they're attacking themselves because of his manipulation with them. Um, But he says, like, you know, he's asked, do you just find, like you know do you just pick up records in a record store for like 50 cents and just go from there and he said yeah but in other cases you start to develop a sense of things that are going to make it increase the odds of having something fruitful within the grooves you start looking for a certain label a certain producers one of the first things that I realized is that anything prior to 1966 probably wasn't going to have what I was looking for because once James Brown invented funk then music began to settle into kind of a 4-4 groove which is what hip-hop is based on and um, I can't confess to being a complete DJ Shadow fanatic I like what I like with him. I once sat in a bus, um, <coughs> one of those like Today FM bus things at Electric Picnic while Selena Murphy interviewed him and I held up an iPad to film it and he was the most intensely focused guy I think I've ever been in a weird makeshift bus with. Um, but this kind of stuff I think is quite peerless and the fact that he's drawing on other music, other samples like other oh, drums that aren't his own i think it's an incredible kind of statement i think it's amazing to take that that way and just like especially with beat creation which i feel like craig might know a bit more about especially because you know i know the, the Kanye West production side especially appeals to you i guess like you know i think it does come up in the interview like he is kind of asked about you know is this just not stealing is this how is this your thing but i think that there's just such a sense of place even in the sound of those drums and i it doesn't come across to me like a rip-off thing it comes across like tribute and also creating a new sense of power and that's what i kind of get from when i hear it but like i said i had no idea it was a fucking american high school band and i, and I think that's just really really cool
2: uh, yeah i didn't realize that either it's um very clever pick dave and i do love like so, so many parts of that album it feels like you know he it's a walk through musical theory and his intense passion for all these old records but just recontextualizing it and doing something totally fresh at the time i mean just groundbreaking and i'm gonna have to return to that soon because i haven't heard it in years but it's it's wonderful so that was a great pick and now i'm i'm suddenly like <laughs> am i just gonna go back into basic indie rock i might be dave (laughs) but also this man on the skins is no stranger to some loops and samples and stuff all right so get off my back Radiohead. They're there. Um, Phil Selway. Phil Selway and I think Ed and Johnny and some great live performances where they just add a whole bunch of drums and you would kind of need them um, for this kind of level of power. It's a weirdly, um, it's a dark song. I think the energy of those drums where I don't like saying you know tribal because it's overused but there is something of maybe Brothers Grimm about it it's that thing of like the video where you're kind of going into the dark woods with Tom Um, Phil's always talked uh, quite interestingly um, before about like how he gets so many of his rhythms from Tom York just like watching him vibing off him and i think we can get a sense of that particularly i haven't seen tom york's um dancing in recent years the man has incredible inherent rhythm when he cuts loose um but phil selway yeah he's just again another kind of like unassuming guy like you know just sit behind his case dress dress shirt on um a real kind of human metronome as well just incredible precision um and can do a wide variety of things and isn't pre- precious or purist about um you know this is my role in the band um if a song or a piece of work calls for bringing in looping bringing in sampling doing different things um he is kind of there's no ego there with him um and you know for a man that was hugely indebted to the likes of Khan, um, Steve Morris, Joy Division, where, you know, um, a great example of manipulating stuff in the studio to get quite alien sounds that just sound, you know, entirely other and different and alien. And he's taken that, I think, to the nth degree and just really, a really flexible player. Like it just I think he, he allows Radiohead to stay kind of creatively nimble do you know what I mean they can try things with him he's great you know variety powerful when necessary as you heard there Um, fast as hell but always just has that like yeah machine like precision almost a kind of surgical approach Um, so yeah Uh, Wow, that was a very nimble and deft and delicate sign off yourself there,
1: Craig. Um, (laughs) It's it's oh, mate.
2: So, (laughs) So, yeah, uh,
1: it's an outstanding pick. Uh, I was really happy to hear it crash in there, and it reminds me this is easily one of my favourite Radiohead songs, and I fucking love that ending. I love that build up. I love that crash. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, A band that I keep threatening to properly get into, and I will, you know, a band that I know very well, but I've yet to have that unlocking moment. But these are unlocking moments, and yeah, it's interesting. I guess I wouldn't, he doesn't come to mind necessarily, but that's probably doing him. A massive disservice because I I think of Radiohead as like this incredibly like like well-oiled unit. They're a machine. Every part is hugely important. It's not just the Tom York show. They're all individual lights in their own regard. And maybe, yeah, maybe isn't highlighted enough. But um don't be too bashful about going into the indie rock or the kind of bread and butter rock well, because uh that's where I'm going next, baby. I'm- That is, of course, the Smashing Pumpkins. The track is The Everlasting Gaze, and that is the incredible propulsion of one Jimmy Chamberlain. Now, I guess before yeah. I get into this track, it was kind of neck and neck with one other one, which I'll say what it was. I was, I really wanted to get Pearl Jam's Rearview Mirror into this one um, because I wanted to have a song... Uh, particularly drum-wise about like the highlights impact you know pure adrenaline charge yet entirely focused drive with a hint of aggression that also finds room for individual flourishes that are just fucking mouth-watering and um, and like with with rearview mirror by pearl jam which i did not pick even that one has an incredible drumming lore story about it how like the drummer in the band at the time dave abruzzese whose name i'm sure i'm mispronouncing and i do apologize to him because he was quite put upon in his time in the band essentially the story goes that like like Eddie Vedder was giving him a really hard time and did give him a hard time in that band. He wasn't in it for very long and you can actually hear at the end of Rearview Mirror you can hear his drumsticks hitting the ground the story goes that he picked up his snare drum put his fist through the skin walked out of the studio and threw it over a cliff face after like take after take after take after take of the band just being what the like hell there was just a cliff nearby apparently they were recording Sandy. in a studio recording in a studio like atop a cliff a cliff edge but um <laughs> of course they were of course they were but that's I figured I love that song so much and the driving of it is incredible but ultimately I thought if I include that and I include this it's kind of the same point that I'm making. So with all love in the world to Dave Abruzzese, who did deserve better, uh, I can't look past Jimmy Chamberlain because yeah, Jimmy have Chamberlain... Yeah, you to get Jimmy in. I, mean, he's your boy. I mean, well he's I mean, well, he's the reason I wanted to play drums, and maybe I'm retrofitting that a little bit, because I was certainly more enamoured with, like, Clem from Slipknot, I looked up to Clem Burke from Blondie, David Lovering from the Pixies, but I considered, and I still consider Jimmy Chamberlain to be an absolute drumming god. Um, and in terms of songs that are charged so forward by their drumming that everything else must ultimately, you know, kind of overcompensate, I suppose, like in, in line with it. I mean, this is a song that can only end by smashing into a brick wall. And I think particularly of this era of rock and grunge, this is the one. I do think Jimmy Chamberlain is quite versatile. I mean, you only need to look, at the, like, look in the direction of Tonight Tonight or 1979 to witness his softer side and how that can still have an incredibly powerful impact. But his spirit, his speed, his dexterity and his venom here are, I think, I think they're genuinely unmatched. And look, we talk about the Pumpkins quite a lot on this show, um, to the point where I almost debated leaving them off the top five just for repetition. But I've fallen back in love with this song all over again. I I regularly, like, go back to this band now and I I appreciate them so much more. And this song, I mean, it's just... I was always so mesmerized, just absolutely mesmerized by what Jimmy Chamberlain was doing in this one. I mean, even if you watch the video for this track, and it's funny because like every member of the band is fighting for attention, perhaps Billy Corgan most of all, as always. And as his trusty lieutenant, Jimmy Chamberlain kind of, I guess, went where he was told. And it's funny because like, you know, even when he was replaced by session musicians and drum machines, I still love those songs too. So all love to Billy too. But Jimmy Chamberlain was just, I mean, I I can't get over what he could do and how he did it. And on a track like this, I think it's just genuinely unparalleled. One thing I will say for all this gushing, I have said before that seeing the Smashing Pumpkins play in 2008 in the RDS was the worst gig I've ever been to in my life. It was so bad that I was bored by Jimmy Chamberlain just milling around the kit because eventually it just became a weird yes like jam session. But when he was good, Craig, I'm not sure if there was anyone better. From my, just to clarify, my favorite. I'm
2: not saying he was better than, you know, wh- whoever you're thinking of right now. I'm thinking of, right now, I'm thinking of the nicest drummer in rock, Dave. I had to include him. Here we <laughs> <No>. go. <laughs> Stone Age, No One Knows, 2002, I think, Songs for the Deaf, and Mm -hmm. yeah, Davey (laughs) Grohlton, he of Nirvana fame, currently being sued, Um, Foo Fighters, Infamy, and yeah, I I did think of like, you know, he's become, he hasn't quite become a punching bag on this show, Um, but like, you know, we've, I think we've become bored of Dave Grohl, the showman, and the like the whole, you know, what Foo Fighters represents in terms of stadium blandness but uh, yeah but blandness doesn't really apply to his playing when he's behind the kit and I think I like I definitely had to include this because I remember precisely when it came out I remember the impact it had on me as like 13 year old again going back to like sitting outside Matt's class and shame is so raw as I've mentioned in terms of our conversations how great the Ramones were as Ramon like walking to school listening to I want to be your boyfriend but yeah um yeah when this came out lead single on songs for the deaf and there was a whole discussion of okay he's on the entire album why he's back like he hasn't he hasn't picked up um pair of sticks in eight years since of course um, Nirvana coming to sad end and he was just I mean he's talked quite openly himself about finding it just way too painful at the time and he's since returned um, sporadically I would say but just such a brilliant brilliant player I could have picked any number of Nirvana songs um, stuff like Sentinous Apprentice just blows my socks off like just channeled the kind of pain of Kurt's writing and the heaviness and they, you know, Nirvana were a band that went through a lot of drummers in the early days and I think it's no coincidence that they finally kind of hit it big when they got Dave Grohl behind the kit because it just meant they could finally do what Kurt Cobain wanted all along which was just become Sabbath heaviness meets Beatles pop and yeah, like this is just one of my favourite like drum hooks, um, this track because it's Got that weird, like, oompa-loompa rhythm, I guess you could say. That is my technical term. And, you know, rolls, solos for days. Doesn't feel excessive, though. Totally necessary. Just kind of keeps building the energy of it as well. And I think really a- augmented super well by the bass line. Uh, Nick very as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, Dave Grohl would go on to do stuff for da- uh, these Crooked Vultures. And I never really dipped back into his drumming work it was this album it was this song and it's a real standout moment for me it just had huge emotional impact on me as a young teenager this
1: is um this is their mainstream jump to the point that they were playing this fucking song in nightclubs man like they were playing this song It was huge. yeah. Massive. It was they were playing song in very my, strange. My local nightclub in to Fusion it was just like what the fuck. Um yeah, I, I it's it's also a big moment for me as well, I think as a as a teenager, uh which I still was at that time. Yeah, I was. Um so I had to triple check there, but it was like <laughs> yeah, I'm not that old. Jesus. Um so yeah, I was like I remember this coming out. I remember like being desperate to get the album, I remember going to record stores like in like asking for them and pooping. I'm like, Sorry, what is the name of that band? You know, and then of course, two months later, we're all dancing to it in Fusion. So, uh, I also <laughs> recalled as well, um, they played The Ambassador uh, on that tour. I don't think Dave Grohl was with them, I think they got a new drummer at that point, or you know, I think he was just on t- maybe he played a couple of shows, but he was on the album only. Um, and I got a ticket, my friend was supposed to get a ticket, he didn't get when it sold out, it became the hottest ticket in town. People were offering me upwards of a hundred quid for my ticket. And I was like, no, I'm going to go. I went to go. And on that day in Drada, the local bus depot was flooded. There was a biblical fucking rainstorm. All the buses just were grounded. A bus driver was like, go home. And I was like, oh. And I walked home, home with tears home. in my eyes in the rain, Craig. And I missed the fucking gig. And I'm still upset about it. So thank you for bringing that memory up. It's an amazing song. you. It's an amazing song. He does incredible work on it. I will say in terms of his other modern drumming stuff, I quite like the song he did with Trent Reznor and is it Josh Homie, I think? Uh, Mantra for the Sound City documentary. You are Um, right, yeah, yeah. It's a very kind of straightforward buildy rock song, but it's a good one. Yeah, look, for all his kind of, you know, and again, Don't Get Me Started on that recent album and their disco thing that they've been doing, but at the same time when you're an incredible drummer you don't really lose it and he certainly has not and yeah great album by the way so great choice uh number three for me uh picture the scene it's galway i'm on a dance floor this song comes on my best friend runs away and i dance away anyway Of course, it is battles. The track is Atlas. Uh, I say I was dancing away, and I was. wasn't quite alone though. There were lots of like minded souls in that dance floor. There was also a girl in our group who had those Converse runners, but the ones that go all the way up your leg, which I still find kind of freakish and weird. How is that comfortable? That's another story for another podcast. This podcast is about music, and it's about drumming right now. <laughs> <It's> uh, a- <laughs> <laughs> So So much more. um, That's uh, John Stanier, Stanier, I don't know, on the drums, uh, who used to play for a metal band called Helmet, sometimes plays in the supergroup Tomahawk with Mike Patton. And uh, yeah, this. why did I pick this? I picked this because it's a tribute to the glam rock disco beat of yore, repurposed for the late 2000s hipster generation, uh, coming from me at a time when I was really getting into the likes of the Hype Machine, other such American blogs and forums, really beginning to step out of my metal and emo comfort zones, you know? And... uh, (laughs) This was like some kind of wizardry, the likes of which I'd never encountered before. My good friend Adam, who I mention all the time on this podcast, something of a, a guiding light for me when it comes to music around that time. He couldn't fucking stand it. Song comes on. Oh, we're in really? the Roshi And yeah, he was just like, I hate this song. And then it was clear that the DJ was playing the full version, like the seven minute version. He went upstairs to the smoking area to just like cool off, I suppose. And I just kept on going. This is iconic. I know that word's overused. I know I've used it five times in the show already. But seriously, the super high crash cymbal, the yellow Tama drum kit as seen on the cover of the album. It's unbelievable. Um, It was also, Craig, and this will interest you. Number 42 on Pitchfork's 200 best songs of the 2000s. So there you go.
2: That's a decent placing, I would say. Yeah, it is iconic. Um, I remember seeing them do it at Oxygen, whatever year that was, and hearing it from afar and not realising they were on in that tent. But me and another mate were just like, oh my God, it's f-, and just running immediately because we knew from that opening what was uh, about to kick in. I always think of the Jewel, was it, the, yeah, Jewel's performance where uh, I had the same... Um, reaction, it was like, this uh, This is nothing like I've seen before, um, props to my uncle Charles, I think, who recorded and was like, this is going to blow your mind, and it did, and it's great, it's really nice hearing a clip of it again, I do remember um, Tonde Braxton writing a piece where he said that the Strokes were crap and <laughs> that they're just rich kids and they were this generation's Duran Duran and they were killing music. So, um yeah he also did this so it's fine <laughs> well i will
1: say craig and th- this might temper this i think battles were never as good as they were at this point i mean he's he since left the group uh, and other members left the group they're still going uh but i think everything that they've released since mirrored has not been anywhere close to what they captured on that record tonto is another amazing track another amazing drum track on that album it felt like a certain time it felt like a certain moment and they haven't come close since but my god 14 years on what a fucking song
2: nice okay from my uncle to my dad (laughs) Mr Fitzpatrick I guess technically could be me I've never felt like a Mr Fitzpatrick though um so yeah I had to include this because um it's a shout out to my dear father and it's my number two
1: I just want to clarify that I laughed there I brayed with laughter there because the link was so unexpectedly earnest that was lovely Craig nice work
2: (laughs) it's been an earnest top five for me against all odds considering it's you know is Phil Collins is he in this? (laughs) I hope so you'll see that was Led Zeppelin Uh, Phil Collins of course drummed with Led Zeppelin at Live 8 and made a bit of a hames of it Um, not making a hames of it was John Bonham Achilles Last Stand being the song and uh, yeah, my dad's like obsessed with this song. Um, kind of hear why it's like one of their their longest tracks. It's over ten minutes long. You could be kind of younger and not want to listen to the entire thing, but uh, I now can't deny how tremendous it is. I really do maintain that. I think that Zeppelin had a lot of peaks their two main ones for me would be Kashmir and Achilles Sass Stand I think it's like quite slept on it's a real late in the day career highlight and it's just volcanic it's overpowering it's like four guys and I don't know how it's four guys particularly when one of them there is just Robert Plant just kind of <laughs> Faley wailing away and not playing anything but they don't, sounded massive um yeah it was 76 I think uh, a pre- the Presence album and Bonham would be um dead three four years later um really sorry end a guy with a lot of demons but a guy with like a lot of talent just a mountain of a man and just a really like he just fits that mold of like the classic hard rock powerhouse drummer and just kind of did it better than anyone really um so yeah like again i don't know hugely about pure technical ability. I've read a lot this week of talking about how uh, a lot of his fills are tremendous and stuff. I've also seen stuff where like Dave Grohl hero worships him. He... I always remember him saying that he would give his left testicle to drum for Led Zeppelin because of how big a, an impact Bonham had on it. And I think Led Zeppelin were just like, uh, no, you're a bit too much, mate. Um, so we'll get the sun in <laughs> instead. It's probably the right move. <laughs> I think literally they met with him and they were just like, oh, he's very full on, isn't he? It says a lot when it's Led Zeppelin talking like that. But um, I've, I've seen other people say like Dave Grohl could kind of do things that Bonham couldn't quite. But I don't know. It seems like you can pull off like ridiculously fast kind of triplets and stuff. It's just the, how humongous it is. And also I think quite flexible and dexterous as well. They could mix up styles. There's a you know, if you go to House of the Holy, you go to some of those, you know, lesser known moments in Zeppelin's career. There is more diversity there than you might imagine. And Bonham could totally play that stuff too so um,
1: I mentioned Phil Collins there and I should note Sonic Architect Adam did say that if I included in in the air (laughs) tonight he he said if I included in the air tonight in in my top five he said if he even hears a fill of it he's never coming (laughs) back to the show so I've 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 taken that as a genuine warning I haven't included it but in fairness it was in a previous top five it was in the songs and ads I believe that we did last year so I've got it in there before but in fairness I I, I think that would be a magnificent shout but I've refrained instead I've gone for a song that I think is literally perfect for my number two maps by yayayez yeah yeah and the drummer in question is brian chase i went for this one for catharsis craig because even though the guitar line which is beautiful in and of itself uh even though that begins and ends this song i feel like the song doesn't truly really begin until that drum beat arrives which you know i gave you the ending there because uh, like once the crashing of the cymbals is done it's done and so are you but of course that you know perfectly just poised and placed you know so yeah. good and boy did I try and recreate it a million fucking times when I was playing drums uh, this is one of the best songs of all time easily in my overall top 10 I think it is genuinely perfect I wouldn't change a thing everybody sings everybody blooms I get goosebumps thinking about it I got goosebumps cutting the clip I got goosebumps hearing it just there it's the best love song ever written performed with high Ooh. broken majesty <laughs> by Karen oh O but it is Karen O though who at the end of the video thrusts her microphone high over her head singling the drums for the brutal devastating end credits my voice cracked a little bit there man the emotion is in fact quite high a song this sad shouldn't make you feel this good but I think it's armor and I think a big part of that is what Brian Chase is doing behind that drum kit oft imitated never duplicated he's imitating as well but Jesus Christ man what a concoction you talk about Led Zeppelin there and like you know a few people kind of making this big racket I don't know how they did this song and they've never bettered it they're a great band but Jesus this is next level
2: yeah, it's an amazing beat. It just adds so much emotional heft. It's, it's. Can I say it's a vulnerable drum part? I don't know how, but it just sounds vulnerable to me. I love it as well. I think it's, yeah, it's probably the best thing they've ever done. I don't think it's the best love song of all time. um, But yeah, it's, it's damn good. I also love the fact as well that we had those couple of days, four or five years ago, where we thought that um, yeah yeah Yes were getting a credit on a Beyonce album because of an Ezra Koenig tweet where he tweeted out years prior hold up they don't love you like I love you <laughs> and we're like what is this tweet that kind of references a yeah yeah song just the reason it's on the album no he'd actually um written on the album but that was a great moment too and hugely culture, culturally re- relevant as I think this song remains it's just that was a real it sums up kind of an era as well, doesn't it? Like, it just felt like, I will I will concede to you that it is of that generation and that new rock fucking revolution and all that kind of very exciting, like unironically exciting uh, music that was going on at the time. This was the big banner love song. This was the anthem. This was kind of lighters aloft in the best possible way lighters of the heart or something <laughs> wow <laughs> lighters of the heart <laughs> well I do my number one sure right? why not Yeah, I, I
1: think I saw lighters of the heart open up for dragon force one day but, <laughs> but by all means keep going
2: alright here's the perfect song here you go <laughs> what an intro
0: <laughs> of course oh God, yeah you. drift in your eyes I love you I got feet and revenge around the room Love is to shell Money's for you
2: Yes Sebastian Tellier Dave knew it, Tappy probably knew it as the email came in with the clips. Um, Larry Ritternell, 2004. And Tony Allen, um, doing what Tony Allen did best. Um, Kind of six minute-ish masterpiece of a song. Off-kilter, wrong-footing you, but in a way that's just kind of so right. There's that like, not laziness, but there's this great slouch and effortlessness to what Tony Allen could do and yeah when you combine that with the wonky beautiful very French Gainsbourgian bass line as well which is again off kilter it's just it captures your imagination and attention and your heart really entirely and it's again another song that could be unvarnished love song piano led and stripped back but the drums just as with the last one add so much to it and yeah Tony Allen sadly no longer with us Afrobeat Pioneer I mean, we talked about him recently enough on the show um, when we did short albums and expensive shit, uh, the Fela Cootie album and the work he did on that. And he's just got such a daunting career to try and dip back into but I love even the like less heralded stuff like the good the bad and the queen where he's not like Damon Albarn's like perversely not asking him to do much but he is the perfect person to do that even though you're like why is he bothering because he could just do whatever he wants and he doesn't have to do a single thing and yeah I saw Sebastian Telle in the wake of Tony's death talking about this song and it seemed like one of those just very strange moments where They kind of hooked up by chance. Um, Sebastian Tellier says I was in Paris talking with friends um, and I said, ooh la la, my favourite drummer is the drummer of Phila. He actually said ooh la la in this interview with Ben Beaumont Thomas. And someone said, you know, his name is Tony Allen. He lives in Paris in a very strange place, uh, the Defence, which apparently is just like, he was living in the Parisian business centre. Um, I'll call him for your new song and Sebastian Tellier says this was La Ritternelle, very important song for me, already had the chords, the melody, I was looking for a drummer, Tony asked for the music before he came into the studio so he listened to lots of the piano, he was working a lot but not playing, he was thinking about the music, Tony was a very intellectual guy and at one point boom he's ready, I need maybe 15 or 20 takes to be happy but Tony was a one take guy, maybe two to be nice I kept the entire take. I didn't do an edit of it. You can put the instruments in the computer and edit everything. But with Tony, it was impossible to do that. The drums are too complicated. It's like a big river. It's a very human style of drumming. A lot of feelings uh, with a real story inside. And So if you edit it, you destroy the story. So he did not destroy the story. And yeah, that's a big river. Is kind of weirdly sums it up when I read it as well. It's just... I will listen to this song and just be hypnotized all over again by the drums and really try to tune into what is going on. And it's always just slightly elusive, which, of course, just adds to the magic of the song, which is probably my favorite song. And a huge, huge part of that is Tony Allen's drumming.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, come on. It is genuinely a perfect song. I ragged on your intro, but you you put me in my <laughs> place. Um, I thought about it. I thought about it earlier today, actually, and I thought... Because it's worth noting that if someone is unfamiliar with this song, um, there's such a huge build-up before the drums kick in. Um, it's like It rivals fucking, you know, Craig's favorite uh, intro to Craig's favorite album, LCD Sound System, uh, Dance Yourself Clean, uh, it's,
2: oh, there. It, it,
1: it's even longer, um, but the payoff is just sublime, it's unbelievable you're floating on a cloud. Uh, it is a perfect song. It's amazing. I did think about it and I thought, ma, like, I'd probably put it in like kick-ins maybe, but like if we ever do top five kick-ins, but you know, that's getting super fucking niche. Uh, amazing <laughs> choice. I'm really glad to hear it. Um, I thought we would have a crossover. I thought we would have had the same track. I wonder if you just left it for me for an open goal with this one. And I said, um, we got a huge response on Twitter when I put up this week that I was doing this topic. One song more than any other song was in the replies and don't worry because it's my number one too here it is Oh <laughs> man, it's just unbelievable. It's the Walkman, it's the Rat, it's the greatest Stroke song that the Strokes never wrote themselves. Oh, stop. As I say every time, just to rile Craig up that little bit more. Um, yeah, listen, come on. The drummer in question, by the way, is Matt Barrick. Uh, why did I yeah, include? I think
2: Fab <laughs> Moretti would be very pleased with himself if he turned that in. Why? Why, <laughs>
1: why? Fab. why did I choose this? Because uh, it's the one. You know, it is. It is like... The, like again to go back to the Twitter one it was just so funny how often this kept popping up and I, I didn't want to like you know nod at it but yeah, it's fairly obvious um I mentioned that pitchfork list earlier on the best songs of the, of the 2000s this came out in 2004. uh this was number twenty on their list uh here's the two paragraph write up by a writer by the name of Matthew Solarski he said. Somebody is pissed, somebody else is reeling from remorse and everybody's going full throttle on what has become the signature Walkman hyper jam. Hamilton Lighthouser, unhinged even on a good day just flies right off the handle and the rest of the band doesn't slack for a second. Forget secret weapons, everything's out in the open here and all the more dangerous for it. And Bow and Arrows, the album in question, ain't the half of it. This is a St. Valentine's Day massacre of relentless drums, bass and guitar. It all comes together with the whiz-bang aplomb of a Scorsese picture. Of course, remorse is all that's left when it's over, even so, the rat doesn't need a context or a backstory, or a string of descriptive metaphors to completely knock you over. It's a head rush of a song that succeeds entirely on its own merits, the <laughs> Like the ultimate emo anthem for an alternate alternate dimension where girls don't exist. Sorry, ladies. What? Uh, music is what? a. More, I, don't, I don't know where he's going with that. Uh, music is a form of violence, and emo actually means what? raw, <laughs> unbridled emotion and nothing more. Oh my god, that that really went somewhere at the end, didn't it, Matthew Solarski yeah, Um Not my and words. And I think it was a
2: bit hard, you know, unhinged or even on a good day. But, yeah, and also like Hamilton. Sorry, ladies. Um, like there are lots of. I did enjoy what? Whiz Bang and Hyperjam though. So that, yeah. nice piece of reference. Yeah, and you got a plum in there, <laughs> there
1: as well. And a Scorsese reference. Hyperjam is great. Uh, and (laughs) this song is just perfect Uh, again my my buddy Adam to give him his due I think he introduced this to me back in the day and probably with like a really low res YouTube video of the drummer doing his thing there are many of those out there at the moment Uh, Pitchfork's own one where they played in Juan's basement is amazing they're on Letterman of course I have to assume Letterman does the is that your regular drummer bit at the end because how could he not Uh, It's just unbelievable. It's infectious. And you mentioned earlier on, Craig, you mentioned being at a festival and hearing Atlas by Battles playing in a nearby tent and running in. We may have told the story on the show before, but Craig and I had a row. We've told it several (laughs) times. Craig and I had a row of electro picnic Ones. I was being out of line. We were very, very stressed. And I think we both like simultaneously ran to the same Walkman tent when we heard this playing. I don't know if we reunited just in time, but, it, you know, the spirit was there. And I don't know. It's one, like, like the Walkman have got so many incredible uh, drum bass tracks in particular, like the North Pole, for example, is just unbelievably good. Mm. But this just seems to be its own kind of weird thing. It's its own mini album. It's literally perfect. If you even if you look at the videos of the drummer playing, I'm just like, how do you do that? Like, how are you able to, what? And then for Hamilton Lighthouse to come in on top of it and not just keep up with it, but take it to another dimension. Yeah, look, it's, it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate for me. Hyper jam. It's a hyper jam. And I want to say thank you to our Hyper Sonic Architect stand-in this week and next week, the wonderful David Tapley of Tandem Felix Please stream Tandem Felix. Please buy Tandem Felix. Get your merch. Get your get your vinyl. Get your beer mats. Everything, um, you know, because he himself is an incredible, incredible drum beat man of a human being. You've got a microphone, by the, the way. Beer mats. Yeah. Oh, they're they're pretty good. Um yeah. Tapley, you have a microphone mm-hmm. in front of you, by the way. So before you sign off, uh, do you have any shouts of your own for for best drumming tracks? Because I'm sure you must have thought about this during
2: the week. I would say my top five, in no particular order, are uh the Craig on Kanye Sting <laughs> the Kiss Corner Sting, <laughs> the Melvin Ben Sting uh the n- placing for Melvin Ben, the <laughs> new Sting and then number 1 would be uh Bob Dylan like a Rolling Stone live at the Manchester Free Trade Hall 1966
1: <laughs> That's fair. We should Eclectic. also, yeah, I, I, I didn't think I was going to get any other answer in fairness. We should also shout out, because uh, I don't shout it out enough, our intro music for the show, our outro music for the show is Move by Bantam, and that's a rhythmic propulsion grenade all of its own. Uh, that's the show for this week. Thank you, Tapley. Thank you, Craig Fitzpatrick. Thank you for listening, Thank you. listener. What's- and uh, I hope we did the drumming justice. It is an incredibly broad topic, one full of absolutely incredible songs all across the board. And like I say, Give me a couple of days, but hit up my Twitter account at HanRiddyDave. Probably the end of the weekend, we'll see. I'm going to put together all of those suggestions, put them into a big playlist, and we can all enjoy some great rhythm in our lives. But for now, my name is Dave HanRiddy. His name is Craig Fitzpatrick. This has been No Encore. There will be no encore. See you next week. (coughs)